Let's grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think we've all heard the story of the little boy who liked to go visit his grandmother. One of the favorite things he looked forward to was at lunchtime, she had one of those old grandfather clocks that would chime for every hour. And as 12 o'clock rolled around, the great clock began to chime. Chimed once, twice, three times, four times, six times, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen times the clock chimed. Apparently something was wrong with the mechanism, but the boy didn't know that. And he ran into his grandmother who was making lunch in the kitchen. He said, Grandma, Grandma, it's later than it's ever been before. Okay, don't use that story. It's not that good. What do you want? Did, did I charge you for that? I mean, come on. Tough group. Okay, but, um, you know, as we look at the things that are happening in our world right now, I think we would all agree it's later than it's ever been before. We're talking about what we are to be doing in the light of the imminent return of Jesus. And I've been asked to speak on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The title of my message is The Day of the Lord. Let me read a few verses with you. Uh, verse 1 to 11 from 1 Thessalonians 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they will say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light, and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now, this is really important because Paul is making application. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us be watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let those of us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and hope, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we think about these things that Your Word says, we want to hear what Your Word has to say to us, because we're Christians first and pastors second. We're just Your children, and we need to hear Your voice, Help us to know how we can be faithful servants of yours and glorify you with our lives and fulfill the ministry you've set before us. So we commit this time of Bible study to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins by mentioning the times and seasons. Remember Jesus said, you're good at reading weather signs in the sky, but you can't read the obvious signs of the times. You know... I've pretty much given up on weathermen, haven't you? They're basically worthless. They say it's going to be a sunny day and it rains. They say it's going to rain and it's sunny. I think I can do a better job just looking out my window and, oh, this is what the day is going to be. By the way, there are some advantages to being bald. One is bald men always know when it's raining first. It's true. I said that to my wife the other day. We're walking along. I said, it's raining. She said, no, it isn't. I said, no, it is. Now, my wife has enough hair to, to take care of 20 people, you see. I, she said, no, it is. I said, trust me, I feel rain. It's raining. 
That's one advantage. Number two, you never have a bad hair day. Number three, it takes one minute to dry my hair. It takes my wife an hour. Those are pretty much the advantages. But, you know, I'm pretty... Uh, but I think any of us can go out and look out the window and see the signs of the times. I mean, all you have to do is open up your newspaper today and see what's happening in the world around us. And as we look at what's happening in our culture today, we have been called to proclaim the gospel and remind people of the urgency of the time. But let me say that the study of Bible prophecy and the teaching of it is an endlessly fascinating subject. But we should never do so in a merely academic way. In other words, when we tell people that Christ is coming back again and the tribulation period is going to come ultimately and the emergence of the Antichrist, we should be moved in our own heart. Uh, Daniel, when he heard the future of the world in Daniel 10, was stunned and he fell to the ground unable to say a word. And when Bible prophecy is taught and understood proper, properly, it should move our hearts and the hearts of the people we're preaching to it should cause us and our listeners to want to live godly lives, right? Because we're told in 1 John 3, Dear friends, you're already God's children. We can't even imagine what it will be like when Christ returns, but we know that when He comes, we will be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. And all who have this hope purify themselves, even as He is pure. The proper understanding, and I might add teaching, of Bible prophecy should bring about a purification in the listeners. So we're preaching with a purpose, not to just give people a lot of facts and figures, but to say, listen, Christ is coming again, so be ready to meet Him. Our text tells us when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction shall come upon them as a woman in travail. We know, of course, that the Antichrist is going to emerge as a suave, convincing, charismatic world figure. He'll bring about a peace treaty that the Jews and the Arabs will actually not only sign, but apparently keep for a period of time. Then you know how the story goes. At the three and a half year mark is the abomination of desolation after the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And I, Christ, commands people to worship Him as God. And then you know it ultimately culminates in the Valley of Megiddo with the Battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So how are we to react to all of this? Verse 4. You brothers are not in darkness so that they should overtake you as a thief. The teaching of Christ's return is a litmus test of where a person is at spiritually. I think if a person is right with God and they hear the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment, your heart leaps a little bit. And like John, you say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you're not right with God, I think it sort of reveals that, and it's a little frightening to hear that Christ could come back at any moment. So we should understand that. It should motivate us, and it should motivate our congregations. Uh, I recently wrote my autobiography called Lost Boy. How's that for a shameless plug? And... Um, I had some publisher that was crazy enough to, to publish this. And they said, we want you to tell your life story of how you came to faith. And, you know, it's not as much fun to write your own story as you think it might be. Believe it or not, you can actually get tired of talking about yourself. And I got tired of it quickly. 
And going back over my story, I was working with a very talented writer named Ellen Vaughn who helped Chuck Colson write a lot of his books, and she's a real storyteller. So when I was describing this scene, she wanted to know everything. What, what color was the upholstery on the couch? Uh, what did this look like? What did that look like? And so as I was going back and reliving some of these memories from my childhood, it, it was unpleasant. There are things that I would rather leave behind me, but I'll tell you that great ray of hope, my favorite part of the story is, of course, my conversion, coming to Christ. But it was also talking about the Jesus movement. See, because I came to Christ during the Jesus movement in 1970. And by the way, uh, we've made a film out of this as well called Lost Boy, and we're going to show it tonight after the Bible study. And a lot of you have heard stories of the Jesus movement. You've heard of Pastor Chuck and his teaching. You've heard of this mysterious figure named Lonnie Frisbee. And you've wondered, is this a variation on the Frisbee that you threw? Who was this Lonnie? Who is this guy? What was the Jesus movement like? You've heard about the music. You're going to see some footage in this film tonight that will blow your minds. For some of you, it will take you back in time. For others of you, you never stop living in that time. For... For even others, it'll be the first time you've ever seen it. But uh, I showed it to Chuck in his office the other day, and it was just like going back again and revisiting those days, and it got me thinking a little bit about the Jesus movement. You know, our movement was born during that time. Our movement was born from a revival. And I was thinking about the earmarks of that time. And there were a number of things that come to mind, and I'm sure that Many others could come up with more points, but here's a few things that I thought of. Because here was a generation that was going crazy. It's kind of hard to understand how bad it was, but the 60s drug culture was in full swing, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and young people were just losing their minds. It seemed hopeless. Churches were trying to reach them, largely with no effect. How do you penetrate this youth culture? So God says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to raise up a guy named Chuck Smith and another guy named Lonnie Frisbee and I'm going to put them together and I'm going to penetrate this generation. And it was an amazing thing. And I had the privilege of walking in when this thing was already in its uh, full momentum. And one thing I remember is when we would take a seat at church at Calvary, before the song began, before a word was said, there was a sense that God was going to work. Just... It was so thick you could cut it with a knife. God's going to work. What's the Lord going to do tonight or today? There was a sense of anticipation, a sense of expectation. And I don't think there's anything we can do to create that, but when it's there, you know it. And another thing that I think of during that time was There was a strong emphasis on Bible teaching. And that is why the Jesus movement of Calvary Chapel continued on and is still impacting the world today in even greater ways because of the teaching of the Scripture. And that's because many of the other variations or expressions of the Jesus movement were in what we might describe as parachurch settings, but the Jesus movement expressed at Calvary Chapel was really a church with a pastor that understood the exposition of Scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but yet it was relevant and understandable. When I first came to Calvary, I had a real problem with authority figures. I'd been raised in this crazy home with my mom married and divorced seven times. 
I was always getting in trouble with teachers. I basically had never met an adult I respected up to that point in my life with maybe a couple of exceptions. And when I went to Calvary and there were all these young kids and I thought it was really cool and I was relating to it on that level and Chuck came out to teach us that I don't know if I want to hear some old guy. But he reached me. And you know how he reached me? He didn't reach me by trying to be cool. He didn't reach me by trying to relate to me as much as he reached me by being authentic and real and biblical. And that's what I wanted to hear. And that's a good thing for us to remember because we think about how do we reach about our culture today? How do we get through to the young people? Authenticity is the key, okay? Being real, being biblical, being understandable. Number three, there was a music that was very current. And I was raised on 60s rock and roll, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, the Who, the Doors, etc. So when I became a Christian, I thought, well, I have to forsake all music. I guess I'll just sing hymns now. And I came to Calvary, and what later became known as contemporary Christian music was being born before our very eyes. Groups just getting together and playing their guitars and coming up with new songs, sometimes singing them for Chuck in his office that afternoon and playing them that evening. It reached my world. Now let me say this. When you look back at some of that music, it seems a little dated for one reason. It is. It was folk rock. And folk rock was effectively the music of that time. But now we're in another time. So I think when the Lord is working and reaching our young people, we shouldn't necessarily try to recreate what we saw over 30 years ago. We should let it be an expression in the culture and music of today without changing the essential principles of it. But there was also a passion to reach the lost. I don't think there was ever a service at Calvary where we did not see many people come forward to accept Christ. Most of them young. Let me throw one other thing out. There were no youth groups. Isn't that funny? There was no youth group. Everybody met together. You've heard the lyrics of the song. Long hair, short hair, coats and ties. People finally coming around. Looking past the hair and straight into the eyes. People finally coming around. There was uh, just this great breakdown of age barriers. And then one final thing I would point out is there was an emphasis on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We believed Jesus was coming. We had Jesus is coming bumper stickers on our cars. Well, it's been a while. Gone through a few of those stickers. So were we wrong? Should we not have emphasized those things then? No, we should have. Because He is coming. And one day with God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So what is 30 years in the sight of God? A nanosecond or less? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have come to Christ, you've come to become a Christian since 1970? Raise up your hand. Look at that. Chuck, look. We were all praying Jesus would come back in 1970. But thankfully the Lord didn't answer our prayers because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He knew not only that you would come to faith, but He would call you to ministry. You see? So the Lord is right on time, he's right on schedule, and it should not cause us in any way to back off on teaching his return is imminent because it is. We did that back in those days, and I think the Lord honored it, and I think he'll honor it as we continue to do it in the days we're in now. Listen, as we look at what's going on in our culture it's so clear Christ is coming. I mean, as you look at the world today and the changing economics, you realize... 
Antichrist is close. Well, if Antichrist is close, Jesus Christ is even closer. Chuck tells the story of how he and uh, Kay were driving along one uh, time, I think it was maybe October, and uh, there were all the decorations going up for Christmas. And he said, oh, look, honey, Thanksgiving's almost here. She said, no, no, Chuck, those are decorations for Christmas. He said, yes, but if Christmas is close, Thanksgiving is closer. So as we look around and we see what's going on in our world today, we go, wow, Antichrist is close. Check it out. If Antichrist is close, Jesus Christ is closer. He'll come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Fine, what are we to do? Look at verse 6. Let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Three things I would point out from this text that we are to do as Christians and as leaders. Number one, we are to wake up. We are to wake up. Verse six, let us not sleep as others do. <laughs> you know, when I, when I was a kid, I remember I hated to sleep. I remember when I was in kindergarten, I had to take naps after they gave us room temperature milk. I still remember the smell of that rubber mat I had to lay down on. Being kind of a hyperactive kid, the last thing I wanted to do was take a nap. I hated naps. Now, my wife says, go take a nap. Yeah, a nap. Naps are nice. The problem is some of us are taking a nap. But we're, we're in a state of slumber. People in the church are this way. But sometimes even pastors are this way. You know, when you've been at this for a while, you can find yourself asleep at the wheel. You find yourself losing your passion, your fire, your commitment. You're on spiritual cruise control. Living on your laurels. Living in the past. I saw an advertisement for, uh, in a computer magazine a while back, and I liked the statement or the question it asked. The question was, is it an alarm clock or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? And I would pose that same question to you, not to sell you a printer. I think that's what they were promoting. <laughs> is it an alarm clock or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? Are you anxious to be about the Father's business as you may have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Pastors. We never retire. Who retired in the Bible? Now, you're going to transition in time from one role to another. And I think some of us ought to be thinking about this. You know, a question that sometimes is asked, that is asked is, who's going to succeed, Pastor Chuck? Oh, it just got real tense in here. <laughs> well, you know what? Here's my theory on that. I think instead of worrying about who's going to succeed Pastor Chuck, looking at some of you, we ought to be thinking, who's going to succeed us? We're not exactly spring chickens, you know, a lot of us. I think Chuck's just going to go on another generation. We're all going to die off and get a bunch of new guys. And they'll all be saying, who's going to succeed Pastor Chuck? Don't worry about Pastor Chuck. Think about you. Because some of you, my friends, my co-laborers, my band of brothers, we've been at this for over 30 years, we ought to be thinking a little bit about it as well. And that's why I would encourage you to give younger men an opportunity to speak in your church. 
I've been doing this more lately, making a real effort to put younger men in front of our congregation. We've had Levi Lusco, who did the morning devotion, did a great job. We've had Raul Reese. Excuse me, Raul Reese. He's, he's old. Uh, we've had... <laughs> Raul just shows up every Sunday saying, can I speak? You know, it's just... <laughs> and by the way, I have to say this. Bob Coy is here. And, uh, and this is, I'm not making this up. I have four witnesses... Uh, we're sitting at breakfast this morning, and Bob said, Greg, let me ask you a question. <laughs> I said, okay, Bob. He says, you know, my name has not been mentioned once at the conference yet. Could you mention my name? Here's why. <laughs> Verbatim statement from Bob Coy. <laughs> Bob, where are you? Stand up for a moment. Bob's not standing. But, uh, <laughs> no, and uh, Pedro Garcia, who's going to speak a little bit later. Another young man. I've been saying, I want you guys to speak to our people. I have my friends, like Raul Reese, that I kid a lot because we've been friends for so long, and many others to speak. But I want to help that younger generation transition in. And you know what? It's not just that I have something to teach them. I think they have something to teach me. Yeah, I think there's a few things I can help them out with, but I think there's quite a few things they can help me out with as well. And I think one way to determine who your successor might be is just put people, different speakers, in front of your congregation. People vote two ways. Congregations. Number one, they vote with their attendance and they vote with their giving. And a practical pastor will watch both. This is assuming they meet the biblical criteria for leadership. But I'm speaking on a purely practical level now. If you find that people are responsive and people are continuing to give, those are two ways people often show their confidence in the person that is speaking. Imagine how hard it would have been to succeed Moses, a larger-than-life figure, not unlike uh, Billy Graham or, or even Pastor Chuck. And God raised up a man named Joshua to take the place of Moses. And when Joshua stepped into Moses' shoes, if you will, he continued the work. And someone is going to take our place eventually. And I think what we want to emphasize to them is that culture changes, styles change, but the essentials never change. And I know someone will take our church over eventually. And my feeling, as long as there is the teaching of God's Word, as long as there's Worship, evangelism, fellowship, those non-negotiables. If there's a slightly different expression, I'm fine by that. There should always be continuity from one leader to the next. Not always conformity. We don't have to live in a cultural time warp. The 60s are over. It's interesting. There's some things that were wonderful to look back on. But let's live in today. His mercies are new every morning. God wants to do a work in our generation and our culture. You know, when I was first starting out, I was called the young preacher. This young preacher. And this young minister, I hated that. Now, oh, I wish they would say it again. <laughs> I took great comfort in that verse of Paul to Timothy, where he said, don't let anyone think less of you because you are young, but be an example to the believers in what you teach and the way you live in your faith and your purity. Some of you are young and you're just starting out. Here's what I would say to you. Enjoy it. Check this out. Some of you might be thinking, who are in startup churches right now, well, one of these days I'm going to get to this point and we'll have this many people and that's when it will be good. 
I'm going to tell you something. When you get to that point, I bet you're going to be looking back in those early days and you're going to say, those were the good old days. Those days where your faith was stretched. Those days when you were dependent upon God weekly, even daily for your resources. Those days when you saw God do an amazing work. I challenge you to take risks. To take chances. It always amuses me how people will start a church right up the street from another church that's doing very well. Well, you know, they weren't reaching the people in the parking lot. <laughs> Reminds me of a guy who was on a deserted island all by himself, and he was finally rescued, and they found three buildings on the island. They said, what are these three buildings? Well, this one, the first one, is where I live. Well, what's this next building? Well, that's my church. Oh, you build a church? Yeah, I build a church. Well, there's another building. What's that building? Well, that's the church I used to go to. But sometimes what we see today as what are called startup churches aren't startup churches at all. They're going into a target-rich environment where another church has already paved the way and worked the soil and they're saying, we'll get some of those people into our church and we'll just do a slightly different variation. That's not risky. That's not faith. That's not a church plant. That's a church transplant. I dare you to go where no one has gone. I challenge you to go into a community, into a state, into a place where there are no churches like a Calvary Chapel and do something fresh and new and be a pioneer instead of building on another man's foundation. You might say, well, Greg, what if I fail? Then fail. But if you fail, fail big. I love old Simon Peter. You know, he walked on the water. We all know that he sunk. We talk about that as though it were a failure. That was no failure. I mean, yeah, he, he, he would have been better if he stayed on top of the water the whole time. But let's go back to the story again. He sees Jesus walking on the water. He says, Lord, of it's you, bid me come. He was not presumptuous. He didn't do it without a command from Christ. Jesus said, all right, come. Peter began to walk on water. Yes, he began to sink. The Lord pulled him back up again. But here's the point. Nobody else walked on water. I mean, if you're going to fail, fail big. If you're going to be a failure, be a spectacular failure. And let me say to you who have failed, thank you. Why? Because I don't know anybody who has ever been successful that has not had failures first. The doorway of success is often entered through the hallway of failure. And that's part of the learning process. And quite frankly, sometimes it's learning what not to do. And... For all practical purposes, before Chuck came to Orange County and started Calvary Chapel, he was in a denominational church. He tried to do it their way. He realized that was not the way he wanted to go. He, by his own admission, said he was not the success he hoped to be. So he discovered a new way of doing ministry, which was a strong emphasis on Bible exposition. And so we have all benefited from his, quote, failures, end quote which he shared candidly with us. So we didn't have to go do those things. And we started out that way. And really, what is success and failure anyway? Is success largeness? When we stand before God on that final day, is God going to say, how many people did you have on Sunday morning? What were your offerings? <laughs> you know what God's going to hold us accountable for? Faithfulness. 
Faithfulness is success. And you see some guys that go up really high and they flame out and they crash and burn. I'd rather just be the faithful dog that never even got on the radar screen of a lot of people that ends well without a scandal. And that to me is great success. If the Lord elevates you, fine. If He doesn't, fine. Whatever you do, it's more than you deserve. More than I deserve. A guy came to Spurgeon once, is a little jealous because Spurgeon's church was so large. said, Pastor Spurgeon, I wish I had a church as large as yours. And Spurgeon said, how many people are in your church? He said, well, I have about a hundred. Spurgeon said, that's enough to give an account of on the day of judgment. <laughs> so we are to wake up. Number two, we are to sober up. Verse eight, let those who are, uh, who are of the day be sober. And when it says sober, it, it is not meaning that there can't be humor and laughter in our ministry. What it is saying is we need to be clear Headed. We need to be alert with our eyes open. We need to be sane and we need to be steady. So we are to wake up. We are to sober up. And number three, we are to suit up. Verse 8, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There's a lot more I could say, but after Chuck's statement about time, I am not going over. So um, I just want to kind of camp on this point for a moment. When it talks about putting a helmet on. Of course, you all know that a helmet protects your head. The guys who ride motorcycles don't like to wear helmets in general, but they do serve their purpose. And Paul's talking about the helmet on the Roman soldier. But let's just think about our mind for a moment, how important it is to protect our mind and to protect our thoughts and the work that we are doing. I think one of the greatest temptations that we can have is, is not just to lust and Think impure thoughts, that can obviously happen. But I think one of the ones that, that I probably struggle with more than any other is worry. How many of you worry? Chuck doesn't. He didn't raise his hand. But I've never seen a guy worry less than Chuck. It's amazing. It's like, give me that. I want it. I want it. Because I worry. And I don't say that to boast. I worry. No, it's not a good thing. Because the Bible says, and everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. But I have a, I struggle with this because this is all oh, worried about that. Oh, what if this? Oh, worry, worry. And I have had to train myself to do what the Bible says as a condition reflex. You know, there's automatic reflex and there's condition reflex. Automatic reflex is when you do what comes naturally. For instance, if you touch a hot stove, you pull back. Why? Because it's hot. No one had to teach you to do that. You just know to do that. Like uh, the guy who went to a doctor with two severely burned ears. The doctor said, what happened to you? He said, well, doc, I was ironing my shirt and the phone rang. And I answered my iron instead of my phone. It's horrible. But how did you burn your right ear? Well, he called back. So that's, <laughs> so that's a natural reflex. But <laughs> a conditioned reflex is when I, I'm taught to do something. For instance, when the national anthem is played, I, I stand and maybe put my hand over my heart. It, it's a respect. Or, or when I'm driving a car. Remember when you're first learning how to drive stick shift? You had to constantly... Think about everything. Let's say I push the clutch in and move this and then I accelerate and be careful. Don't step on the brake instead of the gas. And you, but now you just get in your car and you're eating you know, a cell phone, you're eating a burrito, you're doing it all at the <laughs> same time. So the idea is 
what was once a conditioned reflex now is a natural reflex. So here's what we need to learn. When we are tempted to worry, we need to instead pray. And the moment that thought of worry comes, you say, Lord, I'm putting it in your hands. Because you know what? It's His church. It's not your church. It's not my church. We sometimes say, my church. But it's His church. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so we have a responsibility there. But at the same time, Lord, this is your problem. Lord, this is your opportunity. Lord, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to put it into your hands. That's what we all need to do. And we all need to keep our guard up. Because we're in a spiritual battle. And this battle is only going to increase as you get older. But it will express itself in different ways. Challenges and temptations will vary, but they'll still be there. And there's nothing the devil would love more than to bring you down in the later end of your life so he could, in effect, discredit all the good that may have come through your ministry. We all know that when David fell into a sin with Bathsheba, he was idle when he should have been busy. At the time when kings go forth to battle, David's kicking back, taking a vacation, apparently from God. And he saw the beautiful Bathsheba bathing herself. And you know the rest of that story. But he had lowered his guard. He had opened up his mind. One thing led to another. And it brought great scandal. As Damien Kyle reminded us, we must replace one passion with another passion. There was a time when David was that young shepherd boy playing on his stringed instrument, singing singing his praises to God. But we don't read about that time of worship at this stage in his life. He was probably resting on his laurels. Look at all the stuff I've done. I don't need to work as hard as I used to. I don't need to be as passionate as I used to be. In fact, I've even earned a few of these luxuries. No, no, no. Is it an alarm clock or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? Let's continue on and finish, as Paul said, this work that God has set before us with joy. I urge you to reach not just your generation, but the next generation. You know, with the invention of the automobile, most of the horse-drawn carriage makers went out of business. That's because they thought they were in the business of making horse-drawn carriages. When in reality, they were in the transportation business. A lot of us are relying on techniques that are outdated. Remember records? Some of you don't even know what those were. They were like CDs, but big. And we played them on turntables. Put the needle in the grooves and we listened. And then someone came out with cutting-edge technology called 8-track. It all fit in this little plastic box. And you could put that little 8-track right in your car and listen on the road. And then someone came along with cassettes. And the cool thing about cassettes in contrast to 8-tracks is you could record on cassettes. And this, of course, was a revolution for the church because we couldn't put our messages on 8-tracks, but we could put them on cassettes. That's how I first heard a lot of the teaching of the Word of God was through cassette player. But then someone came up with a CD player. Now you can put multiple messages, multiple song tracks on a single CD. But now we have MP3 and we even have downloadable. A lot of people today, they they don't buy CDs anymore. They just download it. 
And here's my point. A lot of us are still in the cassette tape business in a downloading world. We're wondering, why is the tape ministry not going as well as it used to? Because <laughs> people don't have tape players anymore. That's why. See, you forgot what business you're in. And, and you know, just to use that analogy, this isn't a complete statement, but we're in the communication business, to make a point, all right? I am here to communicate truth. You are here to communicate truth. Why would I want to use old techniques when people are listening in a new way? I read recently that millennials, that generation, that young generation, probably 18 to 22 or so, don't watch television, they don't read the newspaper, and if the news doesn't come to them via the web, or if the video doesn't come to them on YouTube, or if they can't download the music, they'll never hear it or never see it. So meanwhile, we're producing cassettes, kind of using the metaphor here, trying to reach people. Well, we use this style, and, we, and this is the way we... Hello, things have changed. You're not in the horse and carriage business. Let's communicate. The young generation needs to hear what we have to say. Let's not lose our passion. Three things that we're to do in the days in which we're living. We're to wake up, we're to sober up, and we are to suit up. And avoid anything that would stop us from fulfilling the calling that God has put upon our life. Let me close with a parallel passage that pulls this together from Romans 13. You all know it. But I'm going to read it from the J.B. Phillips translation. Why all this stress on behavior? Because as I think you have realized, the present time is of the highest importance. It's high time to wake up to reality. Every day bring God's salvation, brings God's salvation near. The night is nearly over. The day is almost dawn. Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark and let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us live cleanly as in the daylight, not in getting drunk or playing with sex, not in quarreling or jealousies. Let us be Christ's men from head to foot and give no chances for the flesh to have its fling. I love that. Let us be Christ's men from head to foot. And give no chance for the flesh to have its fling. Let's pray. Lord, we want to wake up. We want to sober up. And we want to suit up. We don't want to just hold ground. We want to gain ground. We don't want to just talk about a past generation. We want to reach our generation. And if you give us time and years, the next one. We, Lord, not only want to be faithful to what you've called us to do, but as Paul said to Timothy, we want to pass these things on to faithful men who will teach others to do so. Help us, Lord, find our Timothys, our Joshuas. Help us find that next generation of leaders and pour ourselves into them and challenge them and encourage them because we're in a relay race and the baton is passed on. It's not ours to possess. It's ours to give to another the sacred trust of the gospel and of the teaching of the word of god help every person in this room to fulfill their ministry help every one of us to be able to say as paul said i finished my race with joy i fought the good fight i kept the faith i finished the course henceforth there is laid up for me a reward a crown of rejoicing for all those that look forward to your return. So Lord, help us to finish this course. 
Help us to complete the task you've set before us. We commit ourselves to you afresh. May it be a calling that gets us up every morning, not an alarm clock. May our passion grow stronger each moment of this conference. So we'll come back to our congregations with a great fire that will burn in our hearts. We commit ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.